we are starting a, a new series this week. Uh, we're stepping out of Luke um, again uh, until probably about May next year. We'll jump back in for about 15 weeks and then step out again. Uh, the new series that we're going to be looking at uh, this year, now, uh, week by week, we're going to be looking at one of the nine articles, I think that's what you call them, that's contained in our statement of faith. So that's what we're going to be doing. And as it turned out, we were looking at it yesterday, or I was. Now the last one is on the two ordinances that Jesus leaves us, baptism and communion. So thinking yesterday that maybe on the 4th of December in, um, in what's the word, unison with that, with that series, we would have a baptism service. So if there's anyone here who has come to faith in Christ or in the next eight weeks does that, uh, and hasn't been baptized yet, uh, come and talk to me um, and we'll, we'll talk about a baptism sermon service on that day to uh, tie in with that uh, topic. But for now, we're just going to roll through our statement of faith uh, in the next eight or so weeks. Now, a statement of faith, uh, some of you are thinking, we've got a statement of faith? What's a statement of faith? I hope if you're a member, a partner, you know what a statement of faith is. But a statement of faith is just an outline, uh, a distilling down of what we believe as a church. Uh, if you, I actually printed out about 20 or 30 copies to, to have here, so if anybody wants one, they're up in my office. It's a distilling down of what we believe. Uh, it provides, if you like, what it provides for us is a common ground of truth which serves as the basis for, for, for common worship, for unity of fellowship, for unity of service uh, to Christ. Helps us to have unity in how we accurately know and love God and then, and then gives us a, a real reason for loving our neighbor, a basis for that, that we would do it as a spiritual body and a family, what we would call the local church. A statement of faith is a, a unifying document. A statement of faith helps to protect the unity of the church, helps to protect our, our content and the future of church life, its purpose around what is core, so we don't drift. What makes a good statement of faith is not always what it contains, but actually sometimes what it emits. For example, ours requires repentance, toward God and faith in Jesus for salvation. That's a unifying mark of Christians, we would say. That's what we gather around here at Freeway, and that's pretty cool. That's not crazy. You will find that at just about every Christian church. But what it's not saying, it's not saying anything about how you should dress as a Christian. That's pretty peripheral. It's even culturally shaped more than it is scripturally shaped, even though the Bible does talk about dressing modestly. We don't have a dress code as a marker of what it is to be Christian as core uh, to our identity here. However, I think if you kind of rolled in in a G-string, uh, we'd probably send you back home and say, put some clothes on. That's probably after someone took a photo of you and put it on a social media somewhere. I, st- <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. Statements of faith are not radical ideas. They're, they're almost universal in principle for any organization uh, to have these guiding instructions on what life in their community looks like, what standards of their community should be like. And yet at the same time, a statement of faith is a bit deeper than some values or some principles. It's saying there that these things are actually not uh, external, casual allegiances. 
or that you might have some kind of attachment to a football club, but rather they are internal convictions that mark out identity, that inform behavior. A statement of faith is asking you not to be nominal or casual, but describes an intentional approach based on truth claims, based on realities. Our series, based on our statement of faith, is called What You Believe Matters. It's actually important to be reflective on what you believe. It's actually important to be congruent in what you believe, what you believe and what you practice. What you say shapes your worldview and your practice. Otherwise, you might give a false representation of what you think it is that you claim is your identity. Or you may lack the conviction, perhaps, to, to live by it when challenged. Perhaps, as John pointed out, with some of the trending stories over the past week uh, here in Melbourne, such a sentence like, what you believe matters, has never been more nuanced and more dynamic. If you thought your faith was a private thing, that, that what you believe only mattered to you uh, has been the push over the last several decades, you know, believe what you want, just don't impose it your beliefs on anyone else, this kind of uh, individual pluralism, if you like, you know, live and let live. Uh, we can all believe different things, just don't try and shape anybody else with those beliefs. Seems to have given way to a far more uh, hostile, uh, invasive, ironically far more intolerant cultural conformity agenda where nothing less than complete compliance, internal and external, to the current social revolution is going to do the maligning, the public demonizing of Andrew Thornburn by the shapers and the leaders of our society has revealed that what you believe privately actually does matter. It matters to others. It matters so much so as that they can determine whether or not you are fit to hold a job. If those beliefs don't comport with the doctrines and the statements of faith of the current culture shapers, then you are seditious. You're bad for society. You need to either be converted or you need to be cancelled. <coughs> Religious freedom, though, I might not make it through this sermon. Religious freedom, though, is not the intended scope of this series. But I, I wondered if Christians had a better grasp of what they believe and, and they actually thought about that they actually mulled it over they actually allowed that to shape their actions and shape their reactions when you get people intentionally misleading people like dan andrews speak about our beliefs as being appalling as being intolerant as being hatred and bigoted and just wrong then maybe there would already be a public witness a public experience that refutes these defamatory kind of sloganizing characterizing uh, of christian beliefs and maybe we would not ourselves be so anxious lose our minds at dan andrews preying on the ignorance of what christians actually believe so we should get more intentional and we should get more confident about knowing what we believe that we might get more intentional, that we might get more confident about living that out. 
So the scope of this series as we think about our statements of faith, and and this series is going to be on our statements of faith. There's probably another series later on about how that underpins then how we engage with other social concerns, but we'll get to that. Hope is that we would become confident in them uh, and become more like the kind of people that the gospel encountered in Jesus is creating and that our statement of faith underpins so that we can be a community of people who, who are able to know Jesus and then make him known. So let's get at it. We're going to get at the first, I'm just calling it the first article. I don't know what these lines are called, but I'm calling them articles. The first article of our statement of faith reads, the divine inspiration and supreme authority of the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. That's how it reads. The first foundation of what we says identifies us is that scripture, aka the Bible, is divinely inspired and authoritative over all all of life and over all of life's practice. That is when we are reading the the revelation of God to humanity, uh, we, we see it as divine and authoritative because it contains God's words and activity because God himself has invested his own faithfulness and his own truthfulness into the composition uh, of these scriptures. As Numbers says, in Numbers 23:19, uh, God speaks truth and he does not lie or mislead. It's truthful. It holds supremely because God has spoken it to us. Well, this makes sense. If a book contains the heart and the mind of God as he wishes it to be known, so that it can inform us on how we are to know him and live accordingly with that knowledge, then yes, it is authoritative over human life. The church and its community does not get to define itself, but it must hold fast to what the Bible, God's divine communication, teaches. You don't get to say things like, well, this is my Catholicism, or this is my Christianity. You must let the scripture you read, read you, and define you, and shape you. Now, there is a great relief in this statement, not oppression, Christianity is the only identity, the only worldview that is received and not achieved. This is a book that shapes people, not a book that was merely shaped by people. It is the instrument through which God transforms people and holds people in place. This book gives you something greater to live by than a world ordered by feelings, you know. You'll only ever be happy uh, if you can live out how you feel. A world ordered by materialism or consumerism, you know, you, 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 you are defined by what you have. A world ordered by uh, individualism, the weight of self-actualization and self-reliance. A world ordered by progressivism, you know, as we, as we proceed, we improve, which kind of got blown up in the, in the 20, 20th century. A world ordered by perfectionism. The better we perform, the better we appear, the better we are, the more accepted and approved we are. Rather, Scripture is a gift from God, indeed, power of God, power from God, on how to be fully human and to live as God designed us to live. And that's why Timothy writes, as we 
read this morning, we did all the context at the top, but then right down the bottom in verses 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. The man of God or the person of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, the Bible that contains the Christian scriptures is in appearance a book. However, it is a very unique book, and not just because it is divinely inspired and composed, although that does make it unique, there are other elements of its composition and how it came together that make it unique. Michael Bird, uh, in his book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, which is a cracking book, uh, very helpful in this sermon, begins with the uh, obvious but at times uninvestigated composition of the Bible. That while the Bible is divinely inspired and compiled, it didn't just fall out of the sky in its current form. Rather, the Bible has a complex and providential uh, chain of custody. The Bible did not turn up from an angel who was like working for Amazon or something or other, uh, all bound in leather with words of Jesus in red, you know, uh, complete with introductions and charts and tables and cross-references and, you know, chapters and verse divisions. Those chapters and verse divisions actually didn't turn up till the 16th century. No, the Bible is a product of centuries. Uh, even 1,400 years of work when we're talking about the old Testament that culminated with Jewish authors and scribes, lads like Ezra, uh, taking the work of people like Moses or Jeremiah and David and compiling them into the Old Testament during uh, what they call the Second Temple Period, which is approximately, you know, 530 BC to 70 AD. And when it came together, they call it the Tanakh, and we call it the Old Testament, basically Old Testament, which is a book that's basically divided up into the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then the prophets, which contains Joshua and Judges, one and two Samuels, first and second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets there at the end. They're the prophets. And then the third section is called the writings. And it contains a diverse and miscellaneous kind of collection of writings, wisdom, literature, poetry, uh, histories, chronicles, prophecies, uh, symbolic visions, and so on. And here we have Psalms and Proverbs and Job, Ruth and Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Lamentation, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the first and second chronicles. And there are a lot of other writings that come from that period of time that have not made it into this catalog, into this Bible as we have it for various reasons. And we're not going to drill into all of that today. But here is an interesting fact that Jesus and the New Testament writers quote from the law and the prophets and the writings as we have them over 300 times in the New Testament in their writings. And none of those quotes have come from books not included in that construction of the Old Testament. So it would seem that the Old Testament canon, as we have it, was indeed the one used by Jesus and the apostles. And when you think of who wrote the Old Testament, you should think of, or how the Old Testament came about, you should think of a mixture of oral tradition a mixture of cultural memory and folklore among Hebrews, uh, of written, actual written uh, records. And you should picture a whole team of 
prophets and scribes and historians and editors at various stages of Israel's history who God providentially entrusted with this chain of custody and who God inspired with respect to the composition of the original autographs and the stories and the final product, which is the first part of our statement of faith. Scripture, complexly constructed, is divinely inspired. It is not humanity searching for, trying to describe God, but rather it's God revealing himself truthfully and accurately, uh, what we would call special revelation, not the general revelation that Paul talks about in Romans. You know, like the world has a certain way of telling us that God is real or, or the psalmist in Psalm 19, they're general revelations. When it comes to scripture, we're talking about special. I should add, and uh, I added this this morning, I was thinking, it's a long sermon, uh, I'm going to make it longer. But this team of people are not randoms. They are people that God has chosen and elected to carry his story. And they are people who Jesus has chosen and elected to bear witness to his life, death, and resurrection. They are the Hebrew prophets, and they are the New Testament apostles, They are people who are experiencing the story, the revelation of God as it comes to them. They're not people looking from the outside into this story. They're not kind of some random person sitting over there going, I wonder what those Israelites are up to. I think I might write something up about them. That's not the scope of inspiration. This special revelation, this inspiration is not based on religious feelings attributed to God who, who stimulates creative writing, nor is scripture a product of divine endorsement. You know, like God just put his stamp of approval, like James wrote something or Moses wrote something, God read it, and yeah, it's not too bad. Bang, we'll keep that. God did not, God is not like a book editor. Inspiration of scripture too is not, uh, here's a quote, maybe a little controversial, it's not divine dictation. Even though there are moments of divine dictation contained within Scripture, it's kind of hard to imagine God dictating to Paul a loss of memory about who he baptized. Oh, sorry, take that back, Paul. That's that kind of thing. Divine dictation struggles to explain genres and personalities and styles, different vocabularies that over the, the this 40 different authors that wrote our Bible. Then we have something called plenary verbal inspiration, which is kind of divine dictation with a bit more free will and personality added in. Probably the best way to think about or how to think of inspiration, how God and human agency combine to produce scripture, again, is what Michael Bird and others call inspiration as conceptual guidance. Hear God through the Holy Spirit stimulates human minds at a level that the human brain formulates an idea into words and sentences so that the author, through their experience, their learning, their emotion and words, write a message consistent with divine intention. And this is not merely about gist or some vague um, concept. Rather, inspiration in this view is the direction of personal thinking. It directs thoughts, uh, not not merely the, you know, the syllables of individual words. Inspiration like this involves a kind of supernatural connection between God's ideas and their verbal expression in the minds of the individual authors. And what this means 
is that you can translate from the Hebrew and Greek or Aramaic, uh, the original received languages and syntax into Latin, into English, into German or French or Chinese, and be confident that you are still reading the divine inspired word of God because the divine intention and inspiration is still intact. This is unlike, say, the Quran, uh, which is only considered to be the word of Allah in its original Arabic as given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. In 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Peter writes that the same Holy Spirit that animated and informed the Old Testament writers, the team of people, animated and informed the New Testament writers. So what Peter does is he connects what we call the New Testament with the Old Testament as being inspired through the same means, through the same process of divine inspiration and intent. And then in his second letter in 2 Peter 1 to 2021, Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and that is how scripture in its complete uh, form have come to us that is why Paul in the New Testament can quote Luke as scripture Paul actually quotes Luke in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. And it's why Paul can refer to his writings about Jesus Christ as sacred scripture. Paul actually calls what he, what he writes and says the word of God. Read about that in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. The content, the content of the New Testament is seen as having the same divine inspiration and authority as the Old Testament. And we know that the Bible is a closed book. We know that after the apostles, there is no more scripture. We know that because God's revelation is complete. There's nothing more to be said that he once said because Jesus has come and he is the final word of revelation. The book of Hebrews tells us that there's no more to be said now that Jesus has spoken in Hebrews 1. 1 in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets and at many times and in and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in the sun. So there's nothing more to come. So Bible is, you get to the end of Revelation, there's nothing more. The Bible actually warns you about adding or subtracting from its content. Tim Mackey points out as well uh, that both in the old and the new covenant people of God, uh, they bore witness to this. They used to use these various writings in worship. And, and, and some of the writings would impact them with a divine quality so that, they, so that when they were used in, in you know, communal worship and that, there seemed to be a supernatural element about them. There seemed to be a transforming element about them. This is you know, subjective thinking. They warm people's hearts with affection to the knowledge of God. And they had an authoritative voice. And so that's another way that these uh, scriptures became acknowledged as God's word to the human heart. Michael Bird, when he's summing this all up, he says this. Now, I'll read this little long quote. God gives us his inspired word, not just to inform us, but to transform us. God's inspired word is not just facts for people, but intended to impact people. 
God's inspired word is not just statements searching for assent, but speech calling for repentance, lament, joy, hope, pondering, determination, discipline, compassion, justice, and trust. Can you see that that is an interactive kind of relationship? It's not just facts. It's getting into you. It's working itself around in there. It's shaping how you live. God does not inspire authors with tidbits of trivia just to be filed away in the back of our minds to later retrieve, like so we can impress our friends and go, oh, the Roman road, here we go. God inspires the biblical authors to compose a diverse array of genres like creation stories, ancient law codes, Hebrew poetry, prophecy, gospels, epistles, household codes and ethics and even an apocalypse in order to shape our minds and our imaginations according to a God-centered worldview. You don't just read the Bible for information. You read the Bible for transformation. It changes you. As the Hebrew writer of Hebrews says, it's alive and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. The actual Greek word is makiah which was a short sword, sword two edges. The Roman Empire conquered the world with it. And here's what Paul says. He takes that sword and he says, well, God's kind of like that. It gets into your soul and it disrupts it. God's inspired word achieves a myriad of effects, best summarized as teaching, rebuking and correcting, and training in righteousness so that people can live as God designed them to live. Well, just as we believe that the Bible has authority because it's inspired, the inspired word of God, we also believe it to be supremely authoritative over life and practice because of its truthfulness and because it can be trusted. And at times, this is called inerrancy. Now, inerrancy to the degree that Scripture is without error and can be taken word for word and story by story, description by description, mathematical equation, you know, as science references, as literal fact, and that any discrepancy in the record, like say the healing of the blind man in Jericho, there's three different accounts of that, they're all different, can be synthesized rather than just left to stand, is, an aspiration, is not an aspiration of scripture. It's not trying to do that. It hasn't set out to achieve that. That's more the aspiration of you know, insecure preachers and theologians. The Bible comes to us through this complex but providential chain of custody, and it's written into uh, the world in the language of accommodation, the language and styles and accepted um, forms of that era into ancient worldviews and literary genres. Accepted understandings of how the physical world works. That's why you can read sometimes about the, um, the, the, the planet going, no, the sun going around the planet, which I had to make sure I had it the right way, which doesn't actually happen. Into the physical world, along with historical writing styles and standards of truth telling. The Bible is for our time, however, it's not written 
about our time. So there's some work to be done in understanding the context to allow it to speak with the same authority and the same truth into our modern understanding, into our modern context. That's what David Koch kind of just, uh, in his laziness, failed to understand when he was actually interviewing um, Guy Mason. He tried to glibly dismiss the authority and the truthfulness and the accurateness of the Bible as being antiquated and outdated, irrelevant, simply because of its age, simply because of the time that it was written. It's what you call chronological snobbery or arrogance. It's never going to match our current standards or parameters of recording history, even though indeed at times it actually outstrips them as is the case with Luke's gospel. Nevertheless, the Bible's comfortable with that, with a more poetic description of creation that paints a picture of unlimited power and relational intimacy rather than the scientific biological process because it's not concerned uh, with the how it happened. It's more concerned with the who is behind all things and the why of these things. It's comfortable with three different accounts of an event because it knows that the intent of the event is what's important, not whether one or two or three people witnessed a miraculous healing. And the fact that you can have different kind of views of an account was perfectly acceptable style of historic writing in the day. This language of accommodation of what was accepted uh, in historic writing styles, though, is never given into sheer error. You may find uh, different numbers. You might find a number of something recorded in Kings, and it's different in Chronicles. You might find two accounts, a different description of one account, as is the case with the healing of the blind man from Jericho. But what you won't find in the Bible is that it contradicts itself in theology and doctrine about the character of God, its main hero, Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do, and the role of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in applying the plan and revealing the plan of God and the work of Christ to the human heart. That is a unified, unbreakable story. What the Bible sets out to proclaim, it does so truthfully and faithfully. When God speaks through human office, he brings the intent of his word to us in perfect truth. Again, as Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? He has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So again, Michael Bird concludes, we can expect Holy Scripture to be true because God has invested his own faithfulness and truthfulness into it. And not just into the recording of the original autographs, but as we have seen, into the complex chain of custody. So when Ezra was compiling the book, he wasn't just acting in sweet self-determination and isolated authority. He was under the influence of the Spirit as he put this together. And this is just me, you know, speculation over here would argue that providentially God has ensured the truthfulness of scripture right up to the 9th of October 2022 by making sure we get the text dug up out of the dirt by making sure critical scholars come together and lay these things down you know oh man this sermon's going to take forever no I won't get into that however when it comes to what the basis for the trustworthiness of the Bible the 
the number one basis for the trustworthy, I was going to talk about how many, how many scripts there are of um, you know, biblical writing compared to how many uh, texts there are of the history of, of the annals of tactics or whatever, but it's ridiculously different. When it comes to the basis of trustworthiness for the Bible as being inspired, completely truthful, and an authoritative word of God, we must turn to the Bible itself. That is the number one place. If the Bible does not declare to be authority for life, wholly trustworthy, good and from God, then we should not give it that space either. We shouldn't just invent something and say, well, we think the Bible's supremely authoritative. And while we may protest that that's a circular, frustrating claim, that is the divinely inspired claim of the Bible. That is to say that the truthfulness of Scripture is grounded in the faithfulness of God to his own word. And the, and the outworking of that, the, the faithful outworking of that. We discovered this when we went through Psalm 119 at the start of the year, which contends that the word of God in its many forms, faithfully, truthfully, confidently guides, instructs and enriches life. God's word is truthful because it reflects the truthfulness of God himself. In Psalm 12, we read that the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Or Psalm 19:7, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. And in Psalm 33, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does. And Jesus himself uh, recorded in John's gospel as saying that the word of God cannot be broken. That's John 10, 35, which commentators take to mean that scripture cannot prove to be inconsistent with itself. You won't find any theological or doctrinal inconsistencies. You won't find a way to break up its unity, its truthfulness. John, who recorded the book of Revelation, constantly emphasizes that the word of his prophecies are trustworthy and true because they come from Jesus, who himself is faithful and holy and just and true. Again, Michael Bird comments that the testimony of God's word to itself is that scripture is authentic and authoritative account of everything which it declares to have happened. Jesus rose from the grave. True fact. Or to be. You can have your sins forgiven. True fact. All will yet take place. If that's the case, then you will spend eternity in heaven, on this earth, with God. Scripture also states that in the end, it's not the ability of people like me, or apologists, or theologians with incredible kind of gymnastic, um, exegetical abilities that makes scripture resonate with truth and compelling authority, even though by nature, scripture is authoritative. But rather, as Paul says in Romans 8.16, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness to our spirit. And as Jesus told his disciples, that the Holy Spirit would guide them in all truth. Read that in John 16. So the Spirit is not only involved in the writing of uh, Scripture, but in the receiving of it, to know what truth is. 
Scripture is authenticated through the witness of the Spirit of God that tells us that God's word can be trusted. The Bible is not God's word, God's truthful word, because a bunch of learned and faithful souls sat around at a church council and said, yeah, this is truth. It's not God's truth because you can dig up all the evidence and go, look at this historic evidence. It is God's word because the Holy Spirit illuminates its truthfulness to us. And as he does, regenerates, transforms, and sustains that truth in us. Its sufficiency and its effectiveness. At the end of the day, uh, scripture both old and new, that scripture both old and new is divinely inspired and supremely authoritative over life is not an argument that you can force on someone. It is experience and deep heart conviction that God in his grace works in our lives. An authoritative view of scripture is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God, but it's the precondition for it. An authoritative view of scripture is not the enemy of a life filled with joy and delight, like like a life of faithfulness in the Bible will lead to a life devoid uh, of joy and satisfaction. After all, Jesus, who is the main promise of scripture and the main hero of scripture, says that he has come to give life and life in the full. And King David, who scripture considers to be one of the greatest people who ever lived and one of the people who in the most dependent need of the word of God, says in Psalm 119 that the word of God is his delight. It's his love. He, he, I love your word. It's like honey in my mouth. That it's comfort for his life. It leads to wisdom and human flourishing because it's true and it's without fault and it's a lamp for my feet and a guide for my path. If you call freeway your spiritual home, then treating the word of God as divinely inspired and supremely authoritative for life means that you will make time for it to be teaching, for it to be rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that you can live the kind of lives that God has designed you to live, so that you can stand in our current culture without anxiety for God's glory and your deep joy. Let's pray. I mean, God, we thank you. We didn't even look at it in this sermon, but you're a God who speaks. You're a God who communicates. You are not a God who's left us to scratch around and try and work out what life is all about, where its meaning is, uh, what the problem with humanity is, and what the solution to that is. You are a God who have come along and given us precise and particular and truthful knowledge of what is real, of reality, of our lives, of who you are. Our prayer here at Freeway is that we would take that word, divinely inspired, and use it as a supreme authority over our lives, that it would guide our faith, that it would instruct our practice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.